Today is Thursday, February 13th, 2020. Time for episode 102 of the Barnhart Podcast. And yes, I had to look over my shoulder to make sure we are actually recording because, wow, it's been over a month. It was uh, January 10th since our last, the last time you and I recorded. And then it mm-hmm. was a few weeks before that, the... Um, uh, simple nonsense and, and silence podcast uh, over the last couple of months I think we've had <laughs> this is our third podcast in, in 60 days almost I know and I keep saying don't worry everybody we're totally we're getting back in the saddle it's all happening all, all kind you know things just keep happening things happen on super nerd side things happen on my side you know the logistics of getting everybody lined up and every all, all both of us in the same place is surprisingly difficult sometimes. So, but here we are, hooray! One hundred two. I keep I, I want to go on uh, YouTube and see if I can find some really nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties cheesy FM radio, um, you know, bumper that's like you know hot hits 102 you know <laughs> so we should we should be taking advantage of the fact that we're in the the fm spectrum during these episodes you know we'd and we only have till 107 so we gotta make hay make hay while the sun shines as they say so yeah isn't uh, there i'm sure there are radio stations everywhere that have magic something so i'm sure there's a magic That's 102 right. a magic, magic 103. 102 <laughs> that's us <laughs> Uh, yes, it's been long enough that I was, I was just saying that I hope I remember how to podcast and, and, and I'm, I'm saying this only partly tongue in cheek, uh, throughout most of the last year or so I was recording with, uh, Adobe's very nice software and switched to something a little bit different uh, a couple of months ago. Part of that was to test that, uh, it worked so that when Ann uh, would have conversations with, with, um, Mark that I wouldn't have to be part of the recording chain for that. I could just edit it and post it. But um, now I'm half paranoid looking over my shoulder to make sure things really are recording. But we're up and going, and um, a few things have happened since the last time we <laughs> we talked. I mean, um, let's see. It was still the Christmas season last time we talked, and yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> we've been trying to, to get together to record as well. Uh, we were trying to get, get together before the end of the Christmas season so we could say, yeah, we still are going to have two podcasts during Christmas. Uh, that didn't happen. Um, yeah. So happy Septuagesima. We're into the purple season now. Already in the purple, baby. We've gone through an entire, yeah, went through that entire little uh, green post-epiphany magic. And now the purple vestments are out. And the Gloria and the Alleluia, they are buried, baby. Which for people like me who can't sing, that's good. I don't have to try and sing (laughs) along with that anymore. You never have to sing if you don't want to. It's one one of actually actually one of the things that attracted me, other than the objective beauty of the traditional Latin mass, is I was like, whoa, there there's no cheesy hymn singing. Even the Novus Ordo parish that I entered the church in in Denver, which was considered to be conservative, you know, neoconservative, but it considered to be conservative. Oh, they would sing those horrible gather us in and all that, you know, as the entrance hymn. And I don't know if a lot of you guys out there, you're probably familiar with that Novus Ordo hymnal. Those melodies are so complex and so all over the place that, I mean, you just, you can't sing those songs. You're looking at the hymnal and, you know, it's just eighth notes up and down the staff. And you're just like, are you, are you kidding me? I can't sing this. Um, And then, you know, also, a lot of it is just rank heresy, too. But, you know, you go to you go to the old mass and, you know, it's a 
if the priest intones the Salve Regina at the end of Mass and we all get to sing that, that's actually cool. You kind of look forward to singing, but and you don't have to. That's the other thing. Emphasizing again what people in the nave do within reason, um, liturgically, really doesn't matter. Really doesn't matter. The only two hard and fast rules of form are you should stand for the gospel and you should kneel for the consecration. Um, other than that, what people in the nave are doing is really neither here nor there. And if you want to pray the rosary and if you want to not sing anything ever, you go ahead and do that. Because remember back in the day, if you've ever been in a church in Europe and there's all those side chapels and all those side altars, why were those there on Sunday mornings, especially? You would just roll into the church and then, you know, there would be masses being said simultaneously on all of those altars and the the nave was completely open there were no pews there were no chairs there was nothing it was just open and you would just go and attach yourself to whatever mass whether it's the mass that the first mass that that just happened to start at whatever altar after you arrived or if you have a, per, a particular devotion to a particular altar and you want to go to the Oh, you want to go to the St. Philip Neri altar? Well, then, yeah, you would go to the St. Philip Neri altar and either there's a mass already going, but, you know, you should you should be there at the beginning of the mass, obviously. But, yeah, it was just people. It, it was open space and you could walk around and this this nonsense about everybody has to be in lockstep and doing this and doing that. That's, that's totally Protestant. You know, don't don't sweat it. Stand for the gospel, kneel for the consecration and really don't worry about much of anything else. And you don't have to sing. Yay. For those of us who don't particularly who don't sing well and don't particularly like to sing. It, it gets to the point where, like I said, when somebody intones a Salve Regina and I can sing that I can sing along with that. It actually becomes enjoyable and fun. But yeah, you, you don't even have to do that if you don't want to. And, you know, if you if you just move your lips and you're saying you're saying kind of in a whisper, sing whispering the words, I, I'm pretty sure our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ hears that, too. So, you know, don't don't worry. Just don't worry. It's it's OK. It's OK. Well, there is the, the saying from St. Augustine that he who sings praise twice. And I always mm -hmm. say that he who hears me sings praise three times as hard that I'll shut up. <laughs> So, but it, but to your point, just sing quiet. So quiet yeah. that nobody even next to you can hear. That, that'll work right. too. And sometimes you can sing it so that not even you can hear. <laughs> you save a lot of breath that way too. Mm -hmm. I did try to sing in a choir one time and I literally got headaches because I had no idea how to sing and breathe at the same time. So I decided to just stick to, stick to computers and, and things that I know how to do better. What I can't do one time, um, I was sitting next to, immediately next to the choir in the Novus Ordo church that I came in through in Denver. And of course, they're singing in harmony. And so I was sitting next to someone who was singing, you know, some wild harmony. And that, uh, oh, I, I cannot sing a melody if someone right next to me or right behind me or whatever, if I can hear someone immediately next to me who's singing the harmony, that pulls me off. I can sing along with things. I can sing along with the radio and I can sing along with a melody as long as other people are solid and are on it. 
but man, I don't know how people do it. I don't know how people like I posted not too long ago, an Alison Krauss song. And if, you know, if you look at the Alison Krauss and Union Station, when they're all singing like in three or four part harmonies, I don't know how they do that. I have no idea how they do that, how they can hear each other and then hold inside their own head the melody. I have tremendous respect for that. And I think one of the things is that it, if we make it to the beatific vision, one of the things that we'll be able to do is we'll be able to do the things that we are not physically really good at here on earth. And it's always been part of the um, the, the Christian tradition, especially in the black church, if you've listened to any, any gospel music, they're constantly talking about how when they get to heaven, that they're going to be able to sing, they're going to sing without ever getting tired. Um, there's, there's a lot of spirituals that, that talk about this, that having that ability to sing and sing without fatigue and sing beautifully and sing perfectly. And I can really understand that because I would, I would love to be able to sing like Alison Krauss can sing. That would be, that would be heavenly for me, literally heavenly. So there you go. Something to look forward to, something to strive for. I was going to say, talking about the, the different kinds of music that you've mentioned and on your Anne's jukebox section on your, on your blog, a lot of it is not country and Western, but what I would call bluegrass. And oh, they yeah, are, yeah. they are famous for their harmonies. Oh Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a absolute sucker for vocal harmonies, and bluegrass tends to be really tight, um, meaning that they're you know they're they're close together um, within within the whatever two octaves. They're generally within two octaves and tight with each other, and oh, just the sound of that, the sound of of human voices in harmony, and that's also why I like very much um, Eastern chant because it is harmonic it's polyphonic chant in the east um and oh i love that and i love the eastern chant that has the bass the a male bass just droning it's it's literally called that it's called a drone where some bass is just holding some note um way way down and then you know the the rest of the choir is singing an incredible harmony and there's that that drone underneath oh i love that so much it's like and, the human voice version of a bagpipe almost yeah yeah except it's way more pleasant than a bagpipe bagpipes <laughs> are trying to emulate um the human voice and really an organ that's why the organ is considered to be a liturgically appropriate instrument Whereas a piano is not. A piano is a percussion instrument. There should never, ever, 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 ever be piano being played in a church, ever. It's it's technically liturgically illegal. Um, organ is liturgically legal because it's it's mimicking you know, physically, it's mimicking the human voice in that it is air passing through a tube which vibrates. And so the organ is meant to be a mimicry, a complementary mimic to the human voice. Um, so there you and, go. And same with strings, too. And I know that in the past we did uh, bring we did, we did raise the whole topic of of pianos as percussion instruments being forbidden from from the liturgy officially. Mm -hmm. 
And I know I, I mentioned the interview that Van Cliburn did with with uh, NPR. And I'm, I guarantee I put a link in the show notes to this, but it's going to be fun to go back and try and find it again. Where he was being interviewed by whoever the NPR person was, their, their music correspondent or whatever. And he was referring to the piano as the lowest of all instruments. And this was in reference to his real dream when he was growing up until his he grew, got to the age where his voice changed was to be an opera singer. And instead, he just made do with this lowest of all possible instruments. And she that just blew her mind. It's like, how can you call this this instrument that, that defined you as a musician the lowest of all? And he said, point blank, it's a percussion instrument. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, it can... If you're really good, you can have it mimic lyric, lyricism and melody, but in the end, all it is is percussion. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's it's just a bunch of banging. And, <laughs> and I don't know if you remember, but I specifically remember very clearly that we got quite a lot of, um, shall we say, negative emails from people pointing out that Van Cliburn was in fact a raging sodomite. So yes, we know, we know. But we're making a point about the piano and pray pray for the repose of the soul of Van Cliburn. I did not know that about him, but then again, my only interest in him was what he could do with a piano. So yep. there yep. you go. Indeed. Uh yeah. Which gets into politics, but we'll we'll hold on until we get to talking about Mary Pete. He's he's on the list here. Okay. Um, I'm sure you've heard that nickname for Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Uh Buttigieg. I, is that how you say it? Yeah, it's Pete Buttigieg, the uh, the, the mayor yeah. of the hamlet of South Bend. I've also heard mm-hmm. him referred to as Mary Pete. Anyway, the the first topic on, on the the political section is uh, Rush Limbaugh. He was mm-hmm. he, he he was an, he announced on on his radio show that he has. Well, I don't think he said stage four. I, I didn't I didn't he hear the, advanced, the announcement. Didn't he? Well, advanced. It, yeah. I, I I think it was in the State of the Union. Trump said it was it was uh, stage four, but. Um, yeah, that's in in terms of talk radio, and and I would defy anybody. Well, I wouldn't defy it. Um, I I would be very curious to know if there's anybody listening to this podcast who has never listened to talk radio. I think podcasting as a forum, as a medium, evolves out of talk radio. And there were people who talked on the radio before Rush Limbaugh, but he was the one who really revolutionized yeah. the, the the format. I started listening to him when I was 13, so like 89 or 90, really early on, really early, um, before before even the Clintons. Um, in fact, I was listening to Rush Limbaugh when Perot, so that would have been the 92 election cycle. So definitely listening to Limbaugh during the 92 election, election cycle. And then, of course, we all remember America held hostage and all of that. And then, of course, I you know, had to stop because, um, you know, you go to college and then you graduate and you start working and can't, can't listen to talk radio during, during market hours or, you know, while you're at work. So it all, I stopped listening at that point, but you know, you know what I did though? No, I do remember when I was in college, he had for a short period, he had a 30 minute television show. Oh, I that was on that. at like, do you remember it was on like at noon, 12 30, 11 30 a.m., something like that? Well, and it, it I was probably syndicated that. because I think it was, at least yeah, it was in, syndicated. At least mm-hmm. in Topeka, USA, it was on at 9 p.m. It When I was in Manhattan, it was on during the day. It was, yeah, because I, rem- I, 
I absolutely remember watching it in between classes. And it was it was actually pretty good. I thought his television show was good. And I was really surprised when it I was surprised that it got canceled because I I figured that it had to have pretty darn good ratings and and viewership just by virtue of how enormous his um his radio audience was and i thought he did a good job with it and it i mean he did do fun um you know he was always doing the 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 parody songs and so on and so forth and he would do fun little parody um parody visual things you know and i watched it i thought it was good but then now in retrospect i'm i'm not surprised that it that it was canceled because like you said um you know Topeka USA that would be that would be an extremely friendly market can you imagine where that show was being broadcast in you know the suburbs of Chicago it was probably on at at, at four in the morning literally or Berkeley do you think they even aired it Mm-mm. I doubt it I doubt it was on yeah, I doubt it was on much of anywhere in California. Yeah, exactly. Well, maybe Orange County and and uh, up in the north part of the state. Well, and there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of Republicans down north of San Diego and La Jolla, I think. So maybe in San Diego, but. But I I got the clear impression La Jolla was very blue. Uh, you have to go oh, up, really? up in oh. Orange County and into the Central Valley and where they have a lot of. Um, Agri- agriculture mm-hmm. and uh, a little bit of, of uh, manufacturing is where the more Republican areas, if you can even say there are true Republican areas of California. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Victor Davis Hanson country in Fresno, but Fresno has been, all of that has been almost completely drained and replaced by the criminal uh, Mexican and Central American class. It's extremely sad. Read Victor Davis Hanson as he has documented for years now the the literal destruction of Fresno and the surrounding area. I had I had clients up there and I did a cattle marketing school up there and they were just pulling their hair out. They're like you don't understand. They've cut off the water. They're just we can't do anything. They've they've they are destroying us and they know that they're destroying us and it makes no sense. They're going to destroy this entire economy and nobody can figure out why in the hell they're doing it. It's not about this, this Delta smelt minnow or whatever they were saying. Why are, why are they destroying the, this massive, massive economy up here because they're crazy Marxists and, they like to see the world burn and really it it does really come down to that sometimes yeah and depending upon who gets elected in this cycle we may we may see this writ large um i yeah. suspect trump is probably going to be reelected but um let, let's hold off on that for a little bit so still talking about uh rush limbaugh it, you uh, you probably saw the saw the state of the union and saw that uh, Rush Limbaugh was awarded the uh, Medal of Freedom. And I mm-hmm. saw the video of that, and I got the clear impression he had no idea this was either it, he had no idea it was coming or he had no idea it was going to happen right that moment. I and, think what he said later is that he had been told that he was going to get it at some point in the future. And I even think Trump was tricksy with him and told him, you know, we're going to do it in March or something like that. And then they sprung it on him. During, I don't think he knew that they that they were going to do it right in the middle of the State of the Union. So I do think that his reaction was 
was real. But I'm glad I'm glad that they did it. I'm glad that they did it. And Melania did a great job as Melania always does a great job. And yeah, it was a, it was a touching moment. Absolutely. And of course, the the liberals complaining that, oh, he's he's soiling this uh, great uh, honor of the Presidential Medal of Freedom by giving it to Rush Limbaugh. It's like, go back and look at who Barry Sotero, um, Barack Obama gave this medal to. He gave it to everybody who, with, with a leftist cause, it seems. Did you see the best? The best one was they kept talking about, well, they kept citing Rosa Parks. They gave the Presidential Medal of Freedom to Rosa Parks. Do you know who a co-recipient of the Presidential Medal Medal of Freedom was when Rosa Parks received it? Uh, Forrest T. Sherman. Donald John Trump. Oh. (laughs) There is a picture. There is a absolutely, in retrospect, historically delightful picture of Rosa Parks standing next to Donald Trump at their Presidential Medal of Freedom um, reception ceremony. It is, it's historically delicious, magically delicious even. I will have to find that. And if I can find it, I'll put it in the show notes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I realized I just mangled two names together. I, I, I said, I said the wrong name. I, I meant to say Nathan Bedford Forrest. And I said, and, and of course, Sherman was the one who marched through that area. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm reading a book on the civil war right now. So I, I mangled some names. Um, Nathan yeah, so- Tecumseh Sherman. <laughs> You would get a you would get a C on your history exam, sir. <laughs> it would put me right in line with Joe Biden. I mean, that guy is about four bagels short of I, I don't know what. Uh, you the, are a dog-faced pony soldier, sir. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> whatever whatever what? that means. <laughs> am I supposed to be angry or happy? I don't get that. I don't know. <laughs> or am I supposed to pity you because you're you're an, an older man forgetting what he's doing? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, Joe. Oh, Joe. D- don't don't get us started because we're we're going to end up having to talk about Hunter. And then when you start talking about Hunter Biden, you start descending into things that are so freakish and perverse that it just. No, or we could we just leave it there should, and just let's say leave it there. Yep. Let, let's get back on track. Or we just leave, yeah, just say leave it there because the next thing on my notes, I was talking, uh, I had the Iowa caucuses and, and uh, New Hampshire primary. And with, with regard to Biden, I have it in my notes as by Biden. Um, he's gone. Um, he, yeah. when he entered the race, he was far and away. Number one, I think he came in at like 30 something percent lapping the field twice over. And all he had to do was open and start opening his mouth and talking. And he just started falling in the polls and he came in fourth or fifth in Iowa and fifth in New Hampshire. I think he's going to skip um, Nevada altogether and, and try to make a stand in South Carolina saying, remember me, black people. I was the vice president for a black president. Vote for me. I mean, that's all he's got going for him at this point. Not even you're, you're clean and articulate. <laughs> My, what a clean and articulate negress just introduced me on the days. I mean, he he is so stupid that he would say something like that. I mean, there's, but I also think that, I think there's a very good possibility that there's something wrong with him, that he has some sort, he's 78, you know, uh, that he's getting up into some sort of a senior situation. Um, Nancy Pelosi, um, they've been saying for years and years that she has Alzheimer's and, Oh my god! It's uh, we were talking in the warm up about elder abuse, putting Nancy Pelosi out there, and these press conferences that she has. I can't even watch them. It's elder abuse. 
it is absolutely elder abuse to put her out there like that. She can't even speak. She cannot speak. What in the hell are these people doing? I mean, it's uh, it's it's such a testament. And history is going to look back at all of this and look at this this presidential election cycle. Okay, Trump gets in, which I'm I'm still shocked. But you know what? Thank God he's not Hillary Clinton. Okay, Trump gets in. They hate him with the fiery, burning passion of a million Beetlejuices, okay? And they can't, they can't come up with anyone who's even remotely serious, credible, viable. Now, I mean, obviously, we're, we're all, probably everyone who's listening to this, is would never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, even for a nanosecond, consider consider voting for a Democrat in this day and age, obviously. However, I've been watching presidential elections and election cycle cycles hardcore since 88, since the Dukakis um, Bush won 88 cycle. The people that the Democrats were running were, you know, they were serious men and they would have debates and they would talk about serious things. Now, you know, it turned out that who who did run in 88? You had Biden, you had Al Gore. Um, Gary Hart? Gary, uh, no, that was 84. No, he ran, I thought Monkey Business was 84 or 88. Uh Monkey look. business being the name of the yacht on which yacht, he was caught yep. doing stuff. Oddly enough, it's H A R T, right? Um, no, you're absolutely you are absolutely right. He was the front runner for the 1988 Democratic pre- presidential nomination until he dropped out over allegations of an extramarital affair. Yep, you are absolutely right. Um, yeah, because '84 was Mondale. '84 was Mondale. So. Um, Right. That was the whole famous line from Reagan uh, when, when they when they asked him about his age. He said that he's not going to exploit age uh, or he's not going to raise age as an issue and uh, criticize his opponent's youth and inexperience. Right. Exactly. <laughs> that was the all time best line ever Brilliant. in a debate. Brilliant. Yep. And um, who else? Paul Simon. Paul Simon ran in 88. Okay, Simon but they, or Songus? Both of them, in fact. Paul Simon is Paul a singer. Paul Simon wore the wore the bow tie with the with the real deep voice, and Al Franken did him on Saturday Night Live. See, this is my touchstone for all this. I'm actually thinking about back to 1988 Saturday Night Live sketches, and John Lovitz was Michael Dukakis, and I don't remember who Phil Hartman was. Probably Biden. Um, yeah. So. But they, but I mean, they were they were men in suits, and they were talking about things like, you know, social security and and you know, uh, national defense and things like that. And they were having they were having substantive debates. Now, obviously, they're Democrats, but they're having substantive debates. This this clown show is just it's just unbelievable. You've got. About the, the about the one that presents the most serious is a sodomite. And, you know, I try not to watch too much of that, but I've got people just inundating, you know, messaging me and sending me emails and saying, this, what what the hell is his name? Pete Buttigieg or whatever? Buttigieg is, is, is the way it's pronounced. 
It's B-U-T-T, as you might expect, I-G-E-G, if I spelled it right. And he, he's the mayor of the hamlet of South Bend, Indiana. Now, and he people- also is, is a graduate of Harvard. He was a Rhodes Scholar, which, okay, that's Cecil Rhodes said that that scholarship is only for advancing globalism. So, okay, check marks. He went to Harvard. He, he did that. He was part of naval intelligence, and not not much good comes out of naval intelligence usually. He's got mm-hmm. all the check marks. I, I've, I've definitely seen the theory that he is an intelligence plant in the same way that Barry Satir, uh, Barack Obama was an intelligence plant out of the Columbia Intel right. School. I mean, George yep. Herbert Walker Bush was the head of the CIA. How much more obvious can we get? Mm-hmm. Intel, uh, every once in a while, needs to get their person in there. And whether or not they win is another question. But um, at this point, uh, Mayor Mary Pete, Mayor Pete, he's I think he's in in lead. Uh, he's yeah, got, they he's keep got going. the delegate is it, is it lead. Bernie? Is it? Yeah, it's he's he's neck and neck with Bernie or something like that. But um, he's the one that presents the most normal superficially, but then I've got people messaging me saying, Anne, have you seen this guy? I think this guy might be actually the Antichrist. There are people just emailing me right and left saying, there is something seriously, spiritually amiss with this guy. And it isn't just the fact that he's a sodomite. There, there's This guy's a dead-eyed creeper, man. And yeah, that that's the best that they have. And then they, they had, what was it, this Marianne Williams chick who was like having out-of-body experience of magic power crystals. I mean, this is, you're just sitting there watching this. It's making Trump's professional wrestling thing look positively, I don't know, like the signing of the Declaration of Independence or something. A bunch of guys standing around in powdered wigs. I mean, you just how how much lower can this farce descent? Wait, stop. I know, I know. You're gonna have President um, Alexandria occasional cortex or something like that, or you know, maybe in four years, President Alexandria occasional cortex is gonna look positively statesman esque, you know, compared to you know President. President Greta or something like that, you know. I don't know. AOC says some things that are so stupid. She makes uh Biden look smart. Yeah. Yep. But she's she's Bernie's. But then again, do you remember? I think we covered it last year. There was that video that came out that it was I don't know if it was a whistleblower thing or what, but there's this group of a- AOC was like casted in a casting call. They did a literal casting call, this group of super duper far left communists and casted her in the role of you're going to be the candidate for this and such seat in the House of Representatives. And they they've been controlling her. And the point of this expose video was, is she is nothing that they will cycle through her and they'll turn her over. In fact, I just read, I think, yeah, it was today that there are. I think half a dozen people, including just throwing their hat into the race, one MSNBC anchor who's who's going to run, who's going to primary her, primary her in her district. So, and that's yeah. lower than being a bartender. Uh, yeah, yep. So they're just gonna they're just gonna keep rotating these casting call dum dums through every two years, and it's going to be the same damn people the same damn group who's behind these people they're they're effectively just 
they're acquiring these seats in perpetuity for themselves. And the way they keep them is just by rolling a new person in every two years. And then AOC is going to go get some $100 million media deal with Netflix and Oprah and whatever the hell else, you know, like, um, I'm not so sure about that. I'm, I don't know if you follow Scott Adams. He, one of the, th- one of the things that he's known for at, the, in this, at this point in time, at least uh, in politics, aside from doing a, a live stream on Twitter or Periscope or whatever it is every single day these days, he called Trump early. I, I, wanna, I, I don't know if it was like Iowa caucuses time or even before, but he called it when and everyone was making fun of him saying, there's no way Trump's going to win. But he, yeah. he was, he was figuring out, I don't know all the calculus he used. I, I, cause I don't listen to him that often. And I actually, I don't, I don't listen to him live at all. Um, I, I hear clips of what he says on, on some podcasts I listen to. And he is saying that AOC, watch out, she is going to run for president and she stands a chance of winning. Not because she's smart, but mm-hmm. because of she's got a social media presence and a charisma that is undeniable. And anybody on the Democratic side who can get a little bit going, I mean, look at Obama for crying out loud. He can smile. He can speak articulately. Say what you want about my use of that word. But he he presented himself in a non-embarrassing, slick manner. And the Democratic Party, even with Hillary as, as the presumptive nominee that time around, still said, okay, fine. I like We like this guy better. We'll, we'll mobilize everything behind him. Just for pure entertainment, I would love to see AOC versus Ben Shapiro for president. Because the debates would be unlike anything we've ever seen. The problem is debates aren't really debates anymore. So scratch that. I'd rather I'd rather see serious candidates. And I mentioned I'm, I'm reading a uh, Civil War book. Wouldn't it be wonderful if political debates today were like the Lincoln Douglas debates? Mm. There I mean, w- they, would that it were. I don't think there's anybody. You know, my rule about high level national politics is that it is such a corrupt clown show, clown show that nobody with any gravitas, genuine intellectual capability that isn't a raging, raging psychopath wants anything to do with any of that. So the hope of of getting that level of discourse before the triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, I don't think I don't think it's possible. I simply do not think that it is possible. I don't think it'll be a head to head Lincoln Douglas debate, but something like the Joe Rogan show could actually do it. And, and uh, Tulsi has been on there a couple of times and I keep hearing really good things about uh, the way um, that crazy guy from Vermont. Um, I could talk like him. I could, I can make gesticulations. I can't remember his name. What is his name? The, oh, the screamer, Bernie, Bernie. He, Bernie he did Sanders. a three, yeah, he did a three hour interview with Joe Rogan and uh, even the people who don't agree with him whatsoever that I've, I've listened to on podcasts say, at least when you listen to him, um, you know, state his case in a long form, take as much time as you want to explain what the heck it is you think ought to be done. He will make a logical argument. I don't think, yeah, it's I don't think communism. Biden could do that yeah, though. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, absolutely not. I don't think Biden could do that in his, in his prime. Oh, we forgot to mention the other thing about Biden. Biden's had like multiple brain aneurysms and all that kind of stuff. So his oh, brain yeah. literally Somebody, cooked. Yeah. Somebody I know who's in the medical field said that he has, as part of the the um, surgeries he's gone through, he's had his brain exposed to air, oxygen, at least once. And apparently that makes an indelible change for the worse for anybody for who, to whom that happens. He's had the top of his head removed a couple times. 
Wow. And not to change the batteries. Yikes. Yeah. There's clearly something wrong with him. But yeah, I mean, Bernie, say any, any of those people, I mean, look, look at, look at Marx. There, there is an actual ooze there that you can read. It's, it's evil. It's satanic. It's from the pit of hell, but it, it is a, it is a, it is an argument. It is a position. It is a case. It is wrong. It is rife with air and it is completely wrong, but there's, there's something there. There's meat to it. This other stuff, this is just, this is just detached from reality, completely irrational monkeys throwing their poop BS. There, there's nothing there. There's nothing you can even, you, you try to interact with these people. You try to discuss anything with these people. Oh, I got to tell you good story. So Saturday night, long story short, I sit down at this, I've been walking around and doing things and I need, and I'm a little parched and I sit down at this place and order a drink and three communist guys, and I'm the only person sitting on this little patio thing, and three communist guys come into the same place, sit down at the table right next to me. So I'm sitting right there. I'm 100% visible. I was there first. They clearly see me. They're sitting next to me. They start talking. These guys are full, full full-blown, full-blown Los Angeles and New York City communists, because, I mean, I sat and listened to these guys for an hour. You think that it is um, hyperbole to talk about gulags, concentration camps, mass murder. These guys sat and were talking openly about the fact that 80% of the American population outside of the California and New England coastal centers are going to have to be eliminated. 80%. They were well, talking. I'm sure you saw the, I think it was Veritas uh, project. Yeah. They were yep. talking to some Bernie supporters and someone was saying, oh, come on, the, the concentration camps aren't that bad. Uh, the, all, all the Trump supporters are going to have to go to re-education. It's not, it's not going to be that bad. Yep. It's 100% true. I, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm playing it cool. I'm sitting there listening to this because this is, this is fascinating. And they're going on and on and on and on and on and on. Um, we're if we're going to have to build a wall around Texas, and basically either isolate Austin or temporarily move everybody out of Austin, and then just kill everybody in Texas, and then resettle Texas. I sit. I sit in silence listening to this for an hour. I when would have I burst finally- out laughing at that part because I'm I'm, I'm thinking okay. From from the communist point of view, you need to help the people in Austin, kind of like the Berlin airlift. But in terms of killing the people in Texas, do you realize just how heavily armed people in Texas are? Good luck with that, pal. I don't think I don't think these guys have a clue about anything. I don't I don't I think that their perception of guns is limited to comic book movies and video games. I don't actually think that these guys have a have an actual genuine realistic belief in even the existence of of firearms um when i went off and i and i let loose on these guys and it was funny because the wait staff they'd kind of keyed in on this and they were kind of listening to 
And we would, cause you know, we would make eye contact and, you know, make, make kind of subtle faces at each other. And, you know, that me and the waitstaff, one of these communists then starts saying, and I can't use, I'm just going to say F. I'm not going to say the entire word. I'm just going to abbreviate it by saying the letter F. These effing Christians, Jesus was just a effing Jew criminal who got effing executed. And now this entire effing cult has grown up around this, this effing Jew criminal and it's destroyed the world. And now, now look what we're, what it's brought. They, they think that Christianity has to be exterminated from the face of the earth and sitting there just openly, openly blaspheming our Lord. And that's when I, that's when it all came out. And I said, first of all, I told them exactly who our Lord was and what he did for him. And then I did exactly what you were talking about, super nerd. And I reminded him that we are armed to the teeth and you should go ahead and try to do what you've been discussing for the last hour. In fact, I want to be the first person you try to put in line to put in one of those concentration camps. Put me at the front of the line and watch what happens. Those guys hauled ass out of there so fast, you, you can't even believe it. They were like throwing cash on the table and literally ran away. And that's, that's what you have to do with these people. You step to them. And they will, they will cut and run. That's how bullies are. They can't take any confrontation at all. Nothing. And I'm, I'm just sitting there and I'm just saying these things. And these guys are just running, throwing like $100 bills behind them to pay, to pay their bill. Because well, they've be been fair, sitting you, there you drinking. Did use, to be fair, you did use the crazy eyes in their direction, right? Mm, of course. Well, you know, it's a, it's a superpower. <laughs> so, yeah, but... They were just, they were just shunned. And of course, they're yelling obscenities and curses at me about <laughs> cursing me for, for, um, for eavesdropping. Okay. I've been sitting like 24 inches away from you for the last hour. And I'm, I'm kind of hard to miss, you know, um, you've been sitting there talking openly about this and I, I was eavesdropping. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> gotcha gotcha i'll i'll uh, i'll remember not to do that next time it was it was just amazing but there you go interesting interesting but it's all real people the the point of telling this story is that it's not being um in any way paranoid or you know blowing things out of proportion to say that this deal is descending into something that could make the french revolution look like a quaint gentleman's disagreement these people, they're, they're serious about this, and they're openly talking about this in public spaces. Um, again, the only difference is that we're armed to the teeth, and they're all a bunch of soy boys. I mean, I could have broken two of the guys over my thigh with one arm tied behind my back. I mean, they're just pathetic, runty little little soy boys who couldn't even, uh, they couldn't punch their way out of a wet paper sack. It seems to me. For so, people like that, you don't need to be armed. And I, I presume yeah. you've seen the movie tombstone, the one with Mel Gibson or not Mel Gibson. Um, 
with it's the like, Iceman. <laughs> yes. With the, with okay, the I'm having a hard time with names tonight. Val um, Kilmer. Yes, yeah. Val Kilmer. Like Except he wasn't in, the, in this scene. Uh, where, where Wyatt Earp chases um, Billy Bob Billy Thornton. Billy Bob Thornton, yep. And, yep. and uh, Billy Bob's character says, well, you're talking awfully reckless for somebody who doesn't go healed. In other words, you're not, you're not armed. And he says, don't I don't need, need to go to be healed he- on a tough crap like you. <laughs> exactly. Uh, for for these, these soy boys who talk so big, like we're going to have to you know, get rid of 80% of the population. Dude, I could take you barehanded. Yep. <laughs> I mean, you, I, we've never met in person, but you're you're six something, aren't you? Six five on a good day. Wow. Yeah. You you could have just you could have literally just broken this this guy's entire rib cage without without any hesitation. It would be no problem. I mean, yeah, I don't I don't know what they're thinking. I think, but I've been saying for for years and years and years, why in the hell are these super hard leftists in bed with the Musloids? And it's always been this way. It's always been this way. Marxism has allied itself with the Musloids since the very beginning of Marxism. Why is that? Because they need a mercenary army. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's it's not that these people would be carrying out anything. They'd nope. be issuing orders and then hiding in their safe room yep. with with their whatever emotional support animal they can find <laughs> while the while the mercenaries go out and actually do things. Yep. And that's the musloids. And so they're using the musloids thinking that, when, okay, the musloids will do all their dirty work. The musloids will liquidate 80% of the population and eliminate Christianity from the face of the earth. And then these leftists honestly believe that they're going to then be able to subdue the musloids somehow, and the musloids won't come after them. Now, what are the musloids thinking? The musloids are thinking, yeah, yeah, let's let's get in. Let's use these leftists as a way to get in and infiltrate into societies, <coughs> Europe, <laughs> let's use these leftists to get in, get into these Christian lands. And then when we're done, we'll just go kill them last and rape them last. But yeah, well, there it's this mutually usurious situation. It's just exactly like Hitler and Stalin using each other in the early days of World War II. Thinking and fully planning, we are going to turn. We will use them until it is no longer, until we've maxed out the benefit, and then we will turn on them and we'll take them. Both sides are thinking exactly the same thing, and that's what the Marxists and the Musloids are doing, exactly the same thing. Well, and maybe it's possible the Marxists have an evil genius medical person who figure out how to cook up a flu that attacks Arab people, kind of like the uh, the Wuhan flu known to the world as coronavirus is supposed to attack people from the Han Chinese race more than anybody else. Is that right? I hadn't seen that. Oh, interesting. It's it's something that, that um, from, from what I've heard, and I've, I've heard this from a number of different sources, I, I don't, it isn't mainstream news. Um, and, and this is something where um, somebody who was, it was a Chinese person being interviewed on MSNBC. I got to find the clip. I just listened to this on a podcast today. Um, asking whether or not this was a bioengineered uh, virus. And the guy says, yes. And then, and but he, he, he there is this, this weird way of talking where you're not sure of whether or not he was having trouble with the language barrier because this is a Chinese guy mm-hmm. or he accidentally said the right thing and then made it sound like it was a translation error. Um, the, the the Wuhan area where this coronavirus broke out, there is a level four weapons 
uh, research, yeah. not weapons. It's it's a it's a germ research facility. It'd be like Fort Detrick in Maryland here in the United States. But uh, it, there is a suspicion they were working on something there that got out. Um, who knows? Um, it could just be something that crossed over from pigs. Uh, it could be another form of the avian flu or it could just be a coronavirus, which isn't the worst thing. I mean, these things happen naturally and maybe in an area where there is 1.3 billion people of the Han DNA strain. Um, it just happens to affect them because there's the cross pollination back and forth p- between the local animals and these people. Um, maybe, well, the maybe other thing to remember is that just normal everyday flu is continuing, even in the United States, to kill way more people than this has even remotely affected, touched, killed at all. Exactly. Um, if, you, if you go back to SARS, SARS, even in Asia, didn't kill very many people compared to the normal flu. But what this does is it scares the crap out of a ton of people. I mean, this mm-hmm. publicizing uh, the coronavirus or SARS or whatever, you know, the, the flu of what's happening now, it's, it's to publicize that is a terroristic act because it mm-hmm. scares the crap out of everyone. And if you have a Chinese coworker, you stay the hell away from him when he starts coughing because I don't want to get the coronavirus. Okay. That, that, that's wonderful. Um, he's here in the Midwest U S he has no contact with anybody exactly. over there. That's, that's exactly. doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And that is the very act of terrorism for it to be to, to be ramping up and hyping this this virus that um, probably will kill less people than the normal flu. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I I can almost certainly say. I mean, it would have to be it would have to be a hell of a deal. And I mean, look look up and read about the Spanish flu, which happened from 1918 to 1920. It uh, it infected 30% of the global population which at that time was 1.8 billion. The entire global population 100 years ago in 1918 to 1920 was basically pretty close to what just the population of China is today. And it killed 5% of the global population. So, I mean, the, the numbers here... I, I was like doing comparisons and stuff. Just just look at the numbers. The World War II, um, World War One and World War Two combined killed um, like 80 million people. If China today had something kind of similar to what happened during the Spanish flu, and that kind of and had that kind of uh, death loss. China is so enormous that it could absorb the entire death toll, civilian and combat, of World War One and World War Two put together, and I think it would be less than one half of one percent of their population. It, the population of China is absolutely staggeringly large. Um, and, you know, is, is what we're talking about now is what there's, what are the latest numbers? In the low five figures infected and how many dead? Is it even a thousand? I have no idea. I mean, it's, I mean, this is... It does it have the possibility to turn into some global thing like the Spanish flu? 
I suppose it does. Yeah, I suppose that's possible. But just put things in perspective and just go read the just go read the Wikipedia article about the Spanish flu. And that was only 100 years ago. And it wiped out 5% of the Earth's population. They say it's the it's the worst death event, mass death event in the history of the human race, even more than the Black Plague. It did because it and the other thing about the Spanish flu, it killed people on every continent. It killed people in the remotest Pacific Islands. It killed people in the Arctic. I mean, it it was a truly global phenomenon. And um, that's just not what we're talking about yet here. It's just people get the flu. When you see obituaries and, and you know, some person in their upper 80s or lower 90s um, is reported to have died and it might say, you know, they died of pneumonia or something like that. If someone dies of pneumonia, what that usually means is that that was some sort of a, 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 a pneumonia brought brought on by a strain of influenza, probably. And that kills a lot of old people. Flu kills a lot of people. It Rich, insured, old people in the United States, a non-trivial percentage of people die of um, the flu. So keep it all in perspective. And the point there I was getting at was probably a transition from, you know, the, the Marxists and, and the, the Muslims. There, there could be something nefarious cooked up. I suppose when things really get moving in, in the apocalyptic times, we will probably have targeted gene weapons going on. So, yeah, everybody line up and get your 23andMe and get their, your gene sequence uh, profiled so people know how to attack you. Oh, that's just so stupid on so many levels. And I'm not calling anybody listening who did the genetic thing stupid, but what good comes of it, really? Yeah, at this point, don't worry about it. I know one person who's actually, who was, you know, unsure about um, the paternal side of his family and was able to um, discover things and square things away and put things to bed. And that was pretty cool to watch that unfold. But otherwise, yeah, this is a really good point. This whole notion of, of what your genetics are and who your family tree is and all of that morally speaking and in terms of whether or not you are going to achieve the beatific vision that is all completely irrelevant it does not matter who your parents grandparents great 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 grandparents there is neither greek nor jew just quit obsessing about that crap now i know that you know europeans tend to be worse about that americans we're all we're all such a bunch of mixed blood mutts that most of us you know we just don't care and the american culture is so upwardly has that social mobility you can go up you can go down you can go up and down and up again you can you know, go back and forth several times in your life, depending upon your performance. And people, you know, in the United States, you, you don't go interview for a job or meet people and people aren't asking you about your family pedigree. You know, who was your grandfather? Who was your great grandfather? I think a lot of Americans don't realize that crap goes on over in Europe, over in the UK. Those people just get freaked out, obsessed about, you know, where they are. Are they, are my lower middle class? Am I middle class? Am I landed gentry? And it's like, what in... 
what does this matter? Just it's just so irrelevant. And in terms of, especially in terms of you know, your relationship with our Lord and, you know, how it's going to go at your particular judgment. I'm sorry, but who your great, great, great grandfather is, has no bearing on anything. And perhaps more to the point with a lot of people, who your parents are don't even matter. Is your father, was your father some psychopathic drunk? Was your, was your mother some demon narcissist who had, and you know, (laughs) <laughs> she who had who had seven kids and the way she told them apart was by calling them by their last names i mean don't worry it doesn't matter that's not you you're not locked into anything that your parents are were did nothing nothing so it's a it's a clean slate with everybody you can go to confession you come out of confession it is a clean slate you're a new person And it doesn't matter who your parents are or what they did. And that's one of another one of the ways that you can look at Christianity and say, okay, this is coherent. This makes sense. I'm responsible for me. I need to work out my salvation in fear and trembling. And this business of, you know, well, your father did this and your grandfather did that and your and your great great grandmother was this doesn't matter. It just, it just doesn't matter. And that makes sense. You're not held responsible for, for things that you have absolutely no control over. And I have no control over anything that my parents have ever done or any of my ancestors or anybody. And to a certain extent, you know, especially ever since you, you leave your parents' house, they're not responsible for anything you do either. It works both ways. Um, now, parents can absolutely fail in their in the upbringing of their children but um there are a lot of people who have who have done almost everything right and have had their kids go off you know go off into the ditch and go off the deep end hey man it it happens however the parents ability to pray for the children has more power than almost anybody else on earth because of that parent-child relationship, even if they were raised correctly and went off and did something horribly. Let's look at, I mentioned St. Augustine earlier in, earlier in the, mm, the podcast. I was just thinking, mm, St. Monica. Why, did, Saint why Monica. did her prayers work? There's that special right. relationship between parent and child. That's right. That's absolutely right. But, you know, you can't, um, and St. Monica did it is said that she just wept unceasingly. And there there are several others. Um, who is a saint we just had just recently? And he lived a dissolute life. And his mother prayed and wept and prayed and wept. It was just a few days ago. It's like within the last week. I'd have to look it up. I can't remember who it is. But there are several like these uh, in in the Roman calendar. And the the little blurb in the missile is always puts it so diplomatically. So and so led a somewhat dissolute uh, youth had a was a somewhat dissolute youth, you know, and um, and that means that they were just they were just out fornicating and doing whatever. But now, unfortunately, we got people getting into drugs and everything, which is something that I don't think hardly anyone even imagined. Um, it's it's really weird. You look back and 60 years ago, what would that be? 1960? Yeah, about 60 years ago, there was hardly any drug use. 
the hardest drug that people were doing was alcohol. And there were certainly alcoholics, but the marijuana use was minuscule. And then all of these other drugs. Um, and the potency of the drugs is not what they are now. Yeah, exactly. So there was nothing, nothing going on like what's going on now. The other thing I was thinking about the other day that it is, it has changed so rapidly is pornography. Um, 60 years ago, there were, there were, you could get girly magazines with still photographs. And then in some, I, I suppose in just dive, dive, dive parts of New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles, there were X-rated film theaters. But I mean, it, it, having access to any sort of pornography just 60 years ago was minuscule. And now, you know, they're talking about the vast majority of children are consuming pornography by the age of 10 or something like that. And it's just, it is just absolutely staggering how fast this is all gone. And the fact that we today, we just can't even hardly imagine that the world ever existed without this stuff. And the fact of the matter is, well, I'm 43 and I'm, I'm in living memory of a world without ubiquitous pornography and um, ubiquitous drug use, everybody getting stoned. Um, yeah, we graduated from high school without the internet. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The I, first almost time, said, I, I almost said we went through college without the internet too, which you might have to a certain degree, no. but I went through college after you did. The first time I ever saw the internet was in the fall of 1994 at K-State in the Animal Science Computer Lab. And it was and that was also the first time that I had ever seen Windows 3.1. And Wait a I minute. was Internet dazzled. 94, what was that a gopher server? Huh? In internet 94, that would, would have been a gopher server. I have no idea. What does that mean? The World Wide Web as we know it didn't start till 95. No, it was the, it was the fall of 94 because we looked at a website in New Zealand and wow, look at that. And I was like, oh, we're looking at something from New Zealand right now on the screen. That's incredible. It was just a, it was just a website, you know? Okay. I'll, rather than geek out about this on the recording, I'll have to ask you about this later, but, but uh, okay. So Tim Berners-Lee invented the world wide web that happened before 95, but Netscape Navigator came out in 95 and that is considered to be the beginning of the world wide web because it was Netscape Navigator. Yeah. That was 95. It came out in 95. It all right, then it was the fall of 95 then. Wow, K-State, Animal Science Department on the absolute cutting edge of technology. Fantastic. Well, you all have a uh, nuclear reactor there and a pretty good science, uh, computer science program too. Yep, yep, absolutely. We got way off topic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was trying to- You always uh, worry about the outline and the agenda. And then we have these wonderful conversations and everybody says, that was great. And it always turns out well. You worry too much. I don't know, no, but you know, no. it works. You, so usually, it works. Usually I look at the list of bullet points and say, I don't know how we're going to fill an hour and a half with this. But today <laughs> I look at this and said, we've got three podcasts here. Yeah, and now right. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at it and saying, no, we might only have one podcast, maybe two. And, and uh, at this point, probably two, uh, I was working my way through the, the, the transition from the Marxists to uh, bio-targeting and talking about Wuhan flu slash coronavirus. 
And the Wuhan flu is just a nickname that one of the podcasts I listened to gave it because it all started in Wuhan, China. And we were getting into the the death section of the podcast. One of the things that happened since we last recorded, um, if you've listened to all the podcasts, you know that Anne is a, well, at least was an NBA basketball fan. I'm Mm -hmm. definitely a big fan of of basketball, and uh, I, I, I definitely enjoy the NBA version of it more so than college. I always love it when the Jayhawks have a good season, but... It, there's a big difference between watching college basketball, even the best games, and watching NBA basketball. It's literally boys versus men at that point. And so you have the best from all over the world get together. And one of the best ever would have been Kobe Bryant. And this is I'm very biased in this opinion. I, anyone who's you know in the 60s and 70s would probably say that Elgin Baylor could have kicked his butt had they played at the same time. Okay, fine. I am referring to this of, of when I paid attention to the game. Uh, and also it's, it's, it's interesting as, as a fan, uh, perception of this, Kobe Bryant came into the NBA at the age of 17. Mm -hmm. And by the time he retired, he had spent more time in the NBA than he had not been in the NBA. And so you you literally see this snot-nosed kid, or you see him pro- progress from being, you know, this kid who was waving off, you know, perennial all-stars like Carl Malone at the all-star game and and uh, progressing to being, becoming a world champion, getting married, growing up, and then becoming a doting father by the end of his career. You literally get to see the guy grow up and mature in front of your eyes. And he was one of the... One of the nobody in sports except for maybe Shaquille O'Neal, nobody gets to make up their own nicknames and have them stick. And this guy did. And it, 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 it was, a, the nickname was, was Mamba, mm-hmm. the, the, the Mamba mentality. And this, this was, be, it was a reference. It wasn't so much a, I'm better than you thing. It's, this is my commitment to how hard I'm going to work on things. And I, I will freely admit, I'm, I'm a, I was a very big Kobe Bryant fan, more so than being a Lakers fan, even though I was born out there in their zip code. But even though I never met the guy, I never even saw him in person, never saw him play. Um, it, it it had this weird feeling uh, when that when I when I heard he died, it it kind of hit me hard. I mean, I, I always appreciated the fact that he put in so much work and so much effort. I knew that he was Catholic, but I never knew how much. Um, I, it, just the fact the guy was such a professional all the way through. And, wow. and well, yes, there was the incident in Colorado. Lived, yeah, having lived in there, <laughs> and I, I did see him play because I started going to Nuggets games in '99 when Rafe LaFrance was drafted by KU. Of course, Rafe LaFrance was drafted by the Nuggets. I started going in '99. And the Nuggets were awful in that period. So you could scalp tickets for just like nothing. And it was it was really, really good fun. And I got to see all of the, you know, major players of, of that era of the late 90s and into the into the early to mid 2000s. And then I kind of stopped going. Um, but speaking about Kobe Bryant, having having been in Denver in 2003, when that whole rape thing happened, that just that saturated, saturated the news for months and months. And they, it's 
all they could talk about and oh veil this and because it happened in veil he had gone up to veil i think to get his knee scoped and so he's staying in one of these luxury resort hotels up in veil veil is very beautiful and you know he the 19 year old girl was working the front desk and he invites her up to his room and sweetie what the hell do you think he wants and come on and um we're not going to get into details, but it, what happened between them was absolutely sorted. It was sorted. Um, and I'm not talking, and I'm not even talking about whether or not it was forcible rape. The, the activities that went on in and of themselves were absolutely sorted. So, um, however, um, he he's he was clearly he was clearly intelligent. He was very intelligent. He spoke at least three languages: English, Italian, and Spanish. And I've heard rumors that he he spoke more languages than that too. Um, he German, was intelligent at, at the least. Did he speak German? Okay. Well, there, there was somebody I forget who I was seeing um, talking about that particular aspect during the week after he died, uh, talking about how he said he he didn't speak German very well, uh, but. I, it wasn't the dude from Dallas who who played all those years, but it was, it was some, well, it, it wasn't him, but it was somebody who speaks German who said, yeah, Kobe spoke better than, than, than trying. He, he could, he could speak and be understood in German. Mm. Um, and, and yes, as soon as I said he was, he was very professional. I meant that in a basketball sense, in a basketball and sense, there yes. was, there was obviously that, that big problem that happened in 2003. And mm-hmm. in one of the, one of the effects that happened as a result of that, Yes. And and he knew he screwed up when, yes. when, when that all went down. He drew closer to the faith at that point. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I've mentioned he, in the past. He literally the- did have a come to Jesus moment. That was, he literally did. And one of the things, if you can go back and find it on YouTube, because I'm sure it's there, that press conference that he called with Vanessa sitting right there next to him, just staring him down and she's sitting there and she made him spill his guts and fess it all up and beg her forgiveness and on and on and on. And they went on to have, I don't think they had had any kids yet at that point. I think they were married in like, Oh one. And she was young because he married her when she was like 18 so I think when all the rape stuff happened, she was she was either 20 or 21 years old. She was a kid. And then after all that, he absolutely had a reversion. He had to come to Jesus. And they went on to have they had two girls and then they had just had they just had a baby last year and then they had a, a they have another tiny one who's like 3 or 4 so they've got two the, the two older girls and then the two younger girls and she had she filed for divorce in 2011 because you know apparently he didn't he didn't get the message fully after 2003 and it it's known that he was he was having sex with groupies and all of that. Um, and she filed for divorce. And then apparently he snapped back out of it and he got her to call it off. And then they had they had the two more, the two more children. And it seems to me that the tragedy of all this is that he was really he was really just getting started in terms of being a human being. You could tell that he was 
absolutely devoted to those girls and he was absolutely devoted to Gianna the one who died with him because she was a she was a really good basketball player you and there's all these clips now all over the place and they're very tragic to watch of of him interacting with her and you can tell that he's that this is this is not fakery he is he is a doting father and i share exactly the same sentiments that that you just said is that when you know i what i can't remember what time it was oh yeah i remember <laughs> i had just i had laid down to just take a very quick nap and um apparently the the helicopter went into the side of the mountain at 180 miles an hour, just about the time that I was laying down to take the nap. I kind of backward calculated it. And then when I woke up from this little 45 minute snooze and opened my phone, there's this, you know, alert and Kobe Bryant's dead and da 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 da. And it, it, it hit me hard too. It, it takes your breath away. And, you know, I'm like, th this is not my favorite classification of people. This is a guy who is accused of, of, rape um he's a los angeles mega celebrity professional athlete yeah as they go he was he was more intelligent and respectable than a lot of them in in terms of his when he wasn't you know fornicating but um it it, it takes your breath away it absolutely takes your breath away and you're you're hurt and you're kind of <gasps> and it, you know i started thinking about why is that Deep down, why is that? Why do I see this headline, Kobe Bryant dead at the age of 41 in helicopter crash? And it just goes, <gasps> you know, because human beings, rational intellects created in the image and likeness of God are not supposed to die. We are not supposed to die. This is all part of the fall and original sin. And that's why our Lord wept when Lazarus died. He's weeping for the entirety of, of humanity because it, it, it wasn't supposed to be that way. We absolutely are supposed to be immortal. And we, we are immortal, but we're supposed to be immortal in the sense that our bodies never, ever, ever die. Um, and so there, the reason that we're taken aback at things like this um, is that when someone dies unnaturally, especially, um, it is, it's, it's a shock to the, the deep, deep intrinsic knowledge that we all have about ourselves and about our own nature. And that largely people have, have denied and people have driven out of their minds in this lie that, oh, death is a natural part of life. Well, it's a part of life after the fall but it's not the way it was supposed to be. And so that's why it hurts and that's why it takes us aback. And even when it's somebody that, I don't know, I, I, I could probably sit across the table from him and have a very, very pleasant, interesting conversation. But if you, if you offered me that, I would probably turn it down, you know, when he was alive. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm just a Los Angeles NBA player. Uh, I don't know, I don't know. That's just not, that's not my jam. But I do also admit that I didn't realize how much of a family man that he had, he had become since his retirement. So I'm probably in the wrong on that and being, being snobbish and all that. But again, that I can't overemphasize that 2003 deal was just, that was just awful. Um, 
But and, and I was nowhere near Colorado when that happened. I, I remember listening. That was about the time that I discovered who Michael Savage was. And mm. Savage is about the right name because he, I don't know if the name of the accuser was known at that time, but that's when he was becoming known for calling her Rocky Mountain Trash. And that I just got the impression that, you know, I, I had heard um, also talking about talk radio, another legendary person, at least in the Southeast United States, there's a guy named Neil Bortz. He used to be a lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, big time, well, at least in the Southeast U.S. He was syndicated around the country, but he, he never got true national syndication because who cares about somebody who talks on, on, the, on the radio in Atlanta? He also, at one point in time, was the, um, the manager for some big boxer. I forget. I mean, heavyweight champion boxer. I don't know if it was Larry Holmes or who it was. Evander Holyfield, I think. I think, mm-hmm. it, was, I think it was Evander Holyfield. And... I don't remember if this was at the same time that the Kobe stuff was going on or if it was something else entirely, but he said that one of the things that, that came up in his role as a manager and a lawyer for uh, this boxer is dealing with the um, 5'10", blonde-haired, blue-eyed stalkers that always go after these people. Yeah. Yep. But see, that's not that's not what this deal was. This was a hotel. She was the she was the night receptionist. She was the night desk girl at this hotel in Vail. And he invited her up to his room. I mean, come on. What in the hell are you doing? Going up to a to a male guest room, going up to a professional basketball player's room. What 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 the hell do you think he wants to do? Do you think he wants to sit and talk about, you know, <sighs> the zone defense i mean come on i just but then i'm be, being a female myself and knowing how females operate i am i am admittedly always um skeptical about these sorts of things that's not to say of course of course of course there's all kinds of forcible rapes that go on of course it's i consider it a non-trivial chance that i will be forcibly raped before i die probably in in the context of an execution if i am ever executed it's i take it for granted that i would probably be forcibly raped before i was executed Um, did it ever come out whether or not alcohol was involved in that um, and the reason I, I don't ask know. is I just, I just read the book recently called, uh, talking to strangers mm-hmm. and I forget the name of the author, but you can Google it if you want to. And the, the larger point the author makes is that what, what we assume about other people is based on what we believe about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we really don't know how to talk to strangers and also different circumstances when it comes to imbibing alcohol renders impossible in some cases the ability to give consent and he he, the the author followed a couple of cases from college campuses where somebody was charged with rape uh something you know a couple days later or that after after it happened and the guy was saying no no no, she consented all along but she was completely drunk and Mm -hmm. so you begin to ask the legal question at what point is somebody not able to actually give consent regardless of what they're saying doing or demanding That's tough because I watched a Joe Rogan podcast. It's been a while ago. It's been a few months ago. And I don't know who the guy was, but he had some brain chemistry expert on and he was talking about um, blackout drunk. And 
this guy was saying, look, a human being can be can be completely blacked out and the people around them would have no idea. They're not slurring their words. They're carrying on lucid, intelligent conversations. So, I mean, these lines are just extraordinarily blurry. Um, and then the other thing he said about being blackout drunk is that you don't do anything. People generally don't do anything that that is outside of their morality when they're sober. And I I agree with that because it seems to me that these girls who go out and get hammered and then end up, you know, screwing some strange guy that they meet in a bar. I'm sorry, but the truth of the matter is, is that in this culture, and it's been this way for decades now, especially on campuses, um, those girls are going to the bar looking for something like that to happen. They're going with the objective of, quote unquote, uh, with the crude, crude euphemism, they're, they're looking to get laid. And then they can use the alcohol and say, oh, I was drunk. I don't know. And they use it as this get out of jail free card. The fact of the matter is, even if you were blackout drunk, your your personal morality is still functioning inside of your brain. The, the, what this this doctor said is the only thing that happens, I can't remember what the structure is called in your brain. I want to say the hippocampus. The hippocampus can tur- flip the switch on and off of laying down memory. And the only thing that happens when a person drinks so much that they get blackout drunk is that switch goes off and your brain just stops laying down memory. But your moral center, which is like in the front of your brain, that that's completely working. Your language center keeps working. Everything keeps working. It's just that you're not laying down any memories. So, I will include in the show notes a link to the book, Talking to Strangers, because uh-huh. what you just mentioned is almost verbatim from, from the book. Mm. See, maybe maybe the guy on the Joe Rogan podcast was the guy who wrote that book. It's conceivably possible. Malcolm Gladwell? I can't remember. Okay. Well, I was going to interject, though, in talking about moral capabilities. When you go into blackout drunk situation or just drunk period, it's it's a moral sin because what you're doing is depriving yourself of your, of, of your use mm-hmm. of reason. And mm-hmm. reason is the highest faculty that human beings have. That is the highest gift of God that God gave you. And you're supposed to use your reason to know, love, and serve God. That's mm-hmm. the that's the Catholicism 101 that three-year-olds memorize. Why did God make you? To know, love, and serve him in this life so you can be happy with him in the next. Yep. You drink too much alcohol, you can't know, love, and serve anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you are not present. And it just seems to me that altering, altering your, your consciousness. Well, that's why it's moral sinful for the same reason. Yeah, you're, I I like being me. I want to continue being me. Now, this is, this is where it kind of gets interesting because obviously scripture says, you know, give, and St. Thomas Aquinas also said, if a man is sad, give him, give him a glass of wine and have him take a bath and then have him take a little nap and he'll feel better. And, And scripture says, take a little wine if you're, if you're sad and it'll make you feel better. 
And it's absolutely true and it's undeniable. And I, I dare say everybody listening, almost everybody listening to this podcast will probably agree that there is such a thing as when you sit down and you have a drink and you're talking to people and people kind of loosen up, you know, at that loosen up dynamic. Um, and, you know, the, com the conversation is more free flowing and so on and so forth. There's famous stories about... Um, what is it, the Inklings or, you know, Oxford and Cambridge where people would go, students would go and they would have a professor who was a tutor and they would meet in very small groups and just have private conversations. And that was, a, that was an incredibly important part of the curriculum were these small group encounters. I know that that word has been ruined, but I can't think of another one, these small group encounters, small group discussions. And in I, there, it's, well known that in many of these groups, it was required that you had to be sipping on port while you were in this small group because, because they wanted people to talk. The professor wanted people to talk about, you know, the, the piece of literature that they were discussing or whatever it was. And it, it loosens you up that, but that's an interesting thing. It drops your inhibition and that's why people talk a little bit more. And then it gets to the point where they talk way too much, you know, so. So you have the two drink minimum, then we can talk about Cicero. Mm. Indeed. Yeah. You have to have two glasses of port first, and then we'll start talking about Cicero. Yep. Well said. Uh, so, there was, there's something I was going to say about that. And oh, the, the whole moral um, culpability thing. Uh, I've heard it said before, and I'm not a priest, so don't take this from me. Um, when, when, if you get drunk on purpose, you are responsible, morally speaking, for everything you do. Yes. Whether you knew what you were doing or not, this is like up to and including murder. Um, I've also heard it said that you are, not, it is not a, a, normally speaking, it's, it's usually not a sin until the third time you get drunk. And it's, it, this has to do with the fact that the first time you ever drink, you have no idea what you are doing. Oh, and, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you got no idea what you're doing. Um, the only experience I have with having a section of my memory that I don't really remember, and I had to ask people, "What in the world did I do?" This was in, in it was when I first joined the Navy. I had drank beer before, but I'd never drank rum before, <laughs> and, and and I drank it like beer because what the heck do I know? And mm -hmm. and uh, my the first clue that I might have done something I shouldn't have was the looks I got from the other enlisted sailors when when I drank as much rum as I did, but it, there was a delayed effect. I was also told later by, this is one of the weirdest things. Normally when, you, when you're at a, a port of call someplace, the officers go someplace else and the enlisted people go someplace else. This place in Panama was like the one place that ever happened that when I was in the Navy where the officers and the enlisted were at the same place at the same time. And I was told by both enlisted guys and officers that I went over to the officer's table and started debating with them about surface warfare theory. I have no clue what in the world I said, but mm. I wish I did <laughs> because they said, because they said it was actually making sense. And it's like, okay, I, oh, I, no. <laughs> oh, I, I had, I had read proceedings before and the five Naval people who, who listen to the podcast. know that's the professional magazine for Naval officers. I had read that before. So, okay. That's probably why I, I made a little bit of sense, but the, oh, the point man. the point being is is that if you did not do this on purpose, um, you're not morally culpable and you, probably you're not going to do things way outside of 
what you normally would do to Anne's point earlier, Mm -hmm. but that's not an excuse to get drunk. No, no. And then when you start tying things like driving, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that I just, I can't even imagine that. And, you know, I've had people tell me stories about driving home blackout drunk and blah, 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 blah. Back in the, you know, back in the, up until the 1970s or so, man, if if the cops saw a car weaving on the road, they'd, they'd escort, they'd escort the person home. They'd make sure they got home safe. And it's like, wow, wow. That's just, what were people thinking? (laughs) It's uh, so incredibly dangerous and just, but you know, again, it's that weird thing because being blackout drunk is not necessarily, according to the guy on the podcast, not necessarily the same thing as having that drunk spatial disorientation thing. You can be seeing and and completely, you could walk a straight line, but it's conceivably possible that you could be blackout drunk if your blood alcohol level is sufficiently high. Oh, the other thing is... Oh, this is just a treatise on drinking. For all the young people that are out there listening, you're you're learning many things. The other thing about drinking is that what you drink and the order in which you drink it is incredibly important. And the rule of thumb is, is that you always want to be drinking downhill. And what you never do is try to drink uphill. And by that, I mean, so let's say, for example... You're, um, you're drinking, you go out to a, a dinner and you're just drinking wine with the dinner, da, 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 da. and you've been drinking a big three-hour dinner and you're just drinking wine, drinking wine, drinking wine. Then you say, whoa, I'd like something sweet. I think I'll have a cocktail. And then you start drinking liquor. You start drinking hard spirits. That's, that's when your brain will freak out. And, and you'll black out or you'll get drunk or whatever, whereas you wouldn't have if you would have just kept going with the same thing. Um, and there's a rhyme. I remember this rhyme. I heard this when I was in college. Beer before liquor, never sicker. Wine before beer, sailing's clear. And that's that rule about if you're going to drink, drink downhill in terms of the percentage alcohol in what you're drinking. Don't try to go uphill. And there's another rhyme, um, or it's not a rhyme, never mix grapes and grains, which is basically saying the same thing. Don't be drinking wine and then start drinking hard spirits. You can't mix the two because that's when that's when bad things happen. So you can't do that. I heard a lot of sayings like that in the Navy. And what I took away from it is whatever you start drinking, just that's what you drink for the evening. Just stick with it. Just stick with it. And then, then you realize that you've got all these Hollywood people and so forth and they're drinking champagne. And you say, well, I've had champagne. It's, it's, it's not, it's not the tastiest thing in the world. It's dry and it has bubbles and whatever. What, for whatever reason, the champagne is produced such that it doesn't contain um, sulfites, which is one of the big things that's in wine. That's what gives you a headache when, um, 
when you drink wine, if you drink really, really bad wine, you can get a hangover from like two glasses of wine if it's just filled with those nasty sulfites. I've heard it called um, a wine over. The wine over, exactly. You can drink, and that's why all these Hollywood people and models, you see them drinking just champagne, champagne, champagne. If you just, if you start with champagne and you stick with it, you can pretty much drink. I mean, within reason, you can drink as much champagne as you want and your, your body can actually keep up with it. And you might, you might feel it a little bit, but you're not going to get, you're not going to get just falling down drunk or anything. And that's why all those Hollywood people drink it because they can go out at night and they can drink champagne, 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 and then they can be up and do what they need to do the next morning and they don't have a hangover and they don't really feel bad. And so that's why, that's why champagne is so popular. And it's be, apparently it's to do with the quality of the production method and that by law, French champagne can't have those nasty preservative chemicals put in it and all that stuff. And it saves you from all that, which, and then when I heard that, that made the light bulb go on over my head that there are people like, you know, <coughs> Southern Baptists and everything who are saying, well, Jesus drank wine, but it's completely different. And it was just, it was just grape juice. No, 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 no. It wasn't that it, that it was just grape juice and it was not fermented and there was not alcohol in it. Of course, there was alcohol in it back in the day. The difference between alcohol today and alcohol back in the day is that back in the day, it didn't have any of these chemicals in it that we have today. It didn't have any preservatives in it. And so it was what we would consider today and what's marketed today as super organic biological um, wine. And that's, that's what everybody drank all the time because that's all they knew how to produce and that's all that was produced. So in a certain sense, it is true that because the wine was more natural, um, you could drink more of it with less deleterious effects in terms of drunkenness and certainly less deleterious effects in terms of hangover and all of that. So there actually is there actually is a kernel of truth in that, that the wine back in the day was, was quote unquote different, but the difference wasn't that it didn't contain alcohol. That is false. It's all the other stuff that it didn't contain. So find the women who wear Birkenstocks and don't shave their legs and ask them where they buy their wine? <laughs> well, I think most wine labels now on the back, I don't know if it, oh, it says contain sulfites on the back of a wine bottle, but it doesn't say how much. But as with all things in life, you know what I suspect it is? I suspect it's you get what you pay for. And the more expensive the wine is, the less of the garbage chemical garbage is going to be be in it so i have also heard from a toxicologist that the rule is that the solution to pollution is dilution mm -hmm. so you, you're saying drink water while you're drinking or i think so that works okay. <laughs> okay so we got off on a tangent from talking about kobe bryant and and where we i think wanted to get to with this is that the the morning that he his or his helicopter flew into a, a hillside and everybody on board died. Mm -hmm. He had just been at mass and had 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 um, he he was also Received known sacramental to, communion. Yes, and he was known to go to daily mass. So it's not like somebody. Yeah, he's supposed to be Catholic and he he, he was seen at Sunday mass. 
great minimum requirement uh, hit. He was known to go to daily mass. Yeah, yeah. And so, it, so it, it, this was after you know the unfortunate event events of two thousand three, two thousand eleven. He definitely had a reversion to grace, and something I think I've mentioned on, on the podcast that, that I'd heard in the sermon before is that uh, God will allow people to fall into sins against purity to prevent them from falling again into sins against pride. And if you are one of the four best basketball players who've ever lived, mm. you might have a temptation to pride. Mm. Ask Michael Jordan about it. I don't know. Yeah. But but uh, he he had completed his NBA career at this point. He was he was uh, getting into. I think his goal was to to be in um, story writing and storytelling. Mm-hmm. He had an Oscar. Um, he had he had won an Oscar mm-hmm. for a short film he'd done, and he his what he, they were referring to as as a second act. Uh, the people in Hollywood who knew about making movies and and storytelling set were saying that Kobe was going to be even better at that than he was at basketball. Wow! And I have to wonder. Whether or not, I'm sure we've all heard horrible stories about what goes on in Hollywood. How long, assuming Kobe had a a valid full conversion, how long would he be in Hollywood before he had to compromise something? He okay, so he his his poem to basketball was made into a short animated movie, and it won an Oscar. Fine, we'll let you get away with that, Kobe. But if you're going to play on our turf now, the moguls are going to expect you to burn incense to the gods of Hollywood. Well, maybe I, maybe it could have been a mercy he was taken before he he could fall to that. I did get emails from people making the point, you know, and yeah, he went to mass, and yeah, he was a daily ma- daily mass goer, and he received sacramental communion. But here's a clip of him praising Bruce Jenner for being true to himself or something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's just, oh, you just groan. Again, living in Los Angeles, NBA player, mega rich, worth like 600 million or something like that. And you just think this guy was just absolutely up to his eyebrows in some of the worst of what Satan can throw at, at the human race out there in Los Angeles. And it's that this is why, this is why we need to be praying. And I, I'm trying, I haven't got anything done yet. And what I'm targeting is that it is, it is tradition to have a requiem said on the 30 day anniversary and that's coming up. And I'm hoping that I can get someone somewhere to say a requiem for the nine of them, all nine of the people. Um, and I don't know what the situation with the other people, one of the families, the three of them that died that were in the same family. I think it was mother, father, daughter, um, that an Italian last name. So chances are that they were probably, well, they were ethnically Catholic and chances are that they were probably somehow baptized, maybe confirmed, something like that. No, just no idea. But it's it's a it's a good and praiseworthy thing to say, have a requiem said for all nine of them, regardless. Um, and then, of course, little Gianna, 13 years old, 
that was another thing. Oh, as you sat and watched it develop and it went from Kobe and three others and you would say, okay, so there was the pilot and then two other people. And of course, the first thing that went through my mind was I wonder if any of his family was with him. And then it just kept, it just got worse. And oh, Gianna was with him and oh, these other girls on Gianna's team and oh, good grief. And and then you find out that it was just the the pilot just flew the damn thing straight into the ground at full throttle and you know oh, yeah, and if, if you're listening to this and not knowing about the not knowing about the details there there was really heavy fog in, mm-hmm. in in the san fernando valley when this happened and san fernando valley is just over the san gabriel san gabriel the mountains um between la and the san fernando valley and the, the fog was heavier up there um the kobe lived down in orange county and he he had owned this uh, Sikorsky seventy six S seventy six helicopter for years. Um, he I, I'd seen it said that Kobe probably flew more in uh, over Los Angeles than pilots or than than anybody who wasn't a pilot. Um, he had he had that was his way of commuting to practice and to Lakers games. He would lend. There's his, a video clip of him specifically saying he's almost trying to defend why he has this helicopter, and he said, "Listen." The traffic here is so bad that I am, I, I do not have a lot of time as while well, he was still playing. And he said, I do not have a tremendous amount of free time, obviously. Anything I can do to save myself an hour, 90 minutes to, to make a commute, which, you know, in normal traffic circumstances, if the traffic were normal, should take 20 minutes. If I can get, if I can get in a helicopter and I can do it the same way and I can, and I can save that time so that I can be with my daughters. And he made a very clear, compelling case that it was the traffic in Los Angeles. And I've never even been to Los Angeles, but I'm sure there's people listening who know firsthand and every report is is that the traffic in Los Angeles is is just hellish. It's the worst in the country. It is absolutely hellish and it takes forever to get anywhere. And so, yeah, he had the money to do this. And it's something that I'm sure that's occurred to a lot of people who have ever had to commute in an urban environment. Man, I wish I had some sort of a helicopter so that I could just do the do the crow flying route just straight over all of this nonsense and just bypass all of this. I can't begrudge him for that. And I do absolutely believe that his motivation was not some, um, I want to throw money around and be flashy like some rapper or something. He was doing it because he wanted the time with his daughters. And I well, respect that. That, that and he, his, his choice of where to live was based on where it was best for the family. Mm-hmm. I mean, he could have lived... Anywhere. Close to Staples Center and 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 the practice facility, but it wouldn't have been that great for the family. Yep. It, it reminds me of um, the the Chargers quarterback Philip Rivers. He lived down in was it Escondido down down in down in San Diego. Um, when when the team moved to Los Angeles, um, or before they moved to Los Angeles, he was renowned for showing up to practice in a minivan because he's a good Catholic guy has a big family and he didn't believe in spending money frivolously for things like that. But when the team moved to Los Angeles, he's looking at a two hour each way commute now. So, Uh so he dropped, I think in total, it was a quarter million on this SUV that he then had completely refitted. So he could do film study while the driver took him to and from uh, Uh practice. So while everybody else was at the practice facility 
doing film study. He was riding to practice doing film study. And then mm-hmm. the, the last two hours when everyone else was doing something else, he'd be leaving, going back home, doing film study. So he dropped a huge amount of money on a very custom SUV specifically so he could spend more time with his family. I'm exactly. sure Kobe probably said, bro, you could borrow my helicopter or I could rent it to you. Well, he was doing that for all of the other people that were in the helicopter on that day because other people who were on the team with Gianna, that's what the, it was all people with the team and then the pilot, one pilot. And so it was eight people. And so it's six other people that he was helping to get quickly to to the practice to get back and forth to the practice and oh what a tragedy so that you can in a sense rack up nine more deaths and attribute it to the the traffic in los angeles because in in a deep sense in a deep philosophical sense that's kind of what killed them um and you know i the pilot he he clearly just lost it and got disoriented and got vertigo and just just nosedive the thing and just he took was it straight down. Well, I, I shared with you the, the clip from a podcast where, where the guy who is a certified pilot and actually owned an airline, um, had, had an airline certificate where there was all, um, helicopter or transportation. He talked about the two times that he'd flown through a whiteout and he said that was were easily the scariest times in his life. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, you have to immediately come inside, so to speak, because you can't see anything else out the window. You have to come inside, look at your instruments and, and, and fly that way. Mm-hmm. But even if you do that perfectly, that's no guarantee you're going to be on target when you come back out of the fog or the, the cloud or wherever you're in. It's just a compl- it's just way too easy to think you're 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 flying straight and you've you've turned 45 degrees or something like that. That's what's bizarre to me is that <laughs> it's clear that people you would think that the sensation of, you know, saliva moving inside of your mouth or your hair being pulled in one direction or another, people say that you know it it's absolutely nothing. You can't feel it. You could be completely upside down, upside down, and you would swear up and down that you're you're upright and going completely straight. And it happens to the best. I mean, this, this pilot was no, he was no slouch. This guy was absolutely no slouch. And no, he'd he been a commercial pilot it. since he'd been a commercial pilot since 2007. So he, he'd had, I don't know how many hours, but he'd been at this for 13 years at least. Mm-hmm. And he did have, he had instrument rating, if I'm not mistaken. He didn't, he didn't go to instruments because if you go to instruments, then you have to get into the air traffic control pattern of whatever, you have to get into the, the, the specifically dictated air traffic control regime of wherever you're going. Whereas if you're flying visual, you can just go as the crow flies, you know. I have to put this link to the, to what I was just mentioning the the podcast of the the Hilo pilot who was talking about this, and the initial NTSB report seems to back up what this guy said. This guy's idea or this this guy's theory is that what happened is that the pilot uh, had had spatial disorientation and mm-hmm. flipped the whole thing over and and inverted and, and flew into the hillside. Um, the initial NTSB report includes eyewitness testimony from somebody who was on a hiking trail 50 feet above where the, the helicopter dug in, mm-hmm. who saw the belly of the aircraft before it hit. Uh, 
Now, yeah. was that the belly as it's turning, trying to make a turn, so it, it's actually 90 degrees to the ground or completely upside down? Mm-hmm. Either way, bad, bad story yeah. when, when when you hadn't cleared the... the, um, the cleared the fog um it, it was and, and yeah he, he was the the helicopter was flying on visual flight rules they did they did not switch to instruments because that probably would have meant like a 45 minute delay and yeah who knows kobe might have said no get us there sooner just fly vfr and get us landed as soon as you can and maybe that was fatal i don't know there, we'll never know because there's no voice recorder or anything. So well, it, yeah. it's not required for something like that. But yeah, uh, that that's something that when I when I heard that part of the story, I was like, it really takes like a huge delay to go from VFR to IFR. I mean, yeah. which is from visual to instruments in Los um, Angeles. Yeah. Well, you have to check in with, with uh, air traffic control, and I, I did. There, there's, there's at least one helicopter pilot who listens to the to the show that I was I was I was uh, communicating back and forth with him. I was like, does this part of the story make sense? And this, he said, it depends upon how how uh, congested the air traffic is. I said, Los Angeles. He said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're going to get delayed big time. Mm-hmm. So, it's it's a tragedy. It's truly a tragedy um, all around. And again, if anybody's listening out there, fathers, um, I'd like to do a thirty day. Um, whether it's publicized or not, I don't, at this point, that's, that's deeply secondary. I would have liked, it wouldn't it have been wonderful if they had done, um, you know, a, a solemn requiem in, at the FSSP parish there in Los Angeles, absolution at the catafalque, the whole nine. Um, at this point, if, if we can just get somebody to say a low mass, a low requiem on the 30 day, that would be, that would be splendid. And and that's the largest point of this this whole thing is yeah yes Anne and I both have a fascination with the NBA we both had fascination with Kobe and from different directions and and uh, the, the the tragedy of of you know he had made a big turnaround in his life he he'd mm-hmm. gotten serious about being Catholic and his his daughter maybe it's. Maybe it's 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 a, a fortunate thing that she never grew to be a professional basketball player, which was definitely her ambition. I don't know, but she it's, wanted it's de- to go to UConn, that's for sure. And I think that I saw that UConn um, retired a jersey. What did she wear? Number two or something like that? I think they retired. They retired a jersey, a UConn jersey for her. So that's pretty remarkable. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Kobe was saying that she was going to be to the WNBA more than mm-hmm. he was to the NBA, which, you know, given the genes and given the, if, if you can be tutored by somebody like Kobe, <laughs> I don't care. you're going to There's be a good. super funny clip and I'll try to find this. And it's, I mean, it's so bittersweet to watch it, but he's on one of the, t- the late night talk shows and it's not too terribly long ago. And he's talking about Gianna and he's like, so, you know, the coach of Gianna's team calls a timeout and they all come over and I like call her over and I say, listen, when so-and-so, when they do this, you do that. And Gianna's like, well, the coach said to do this. And he's like, dude, I'm Kobe Bryant. <laughs> and it's, it's really charming. It's a really charming anecdote. And, um, <laughs> and there's, there's a, there's another little tiny, clip that went around instantly on Twitter after this happened. And they're both at an NBA game and they're sitting, of course, in the front row. 
and he's sitting there and you can see that he's just talking deep, deep strategy with her and she's eating it up and they're so happy. And it's, it's, again, it's bittersweet, but that's yeah. life. That's life. You mentioned the Gregorian masses. It'd be great to be able to get that arranged for Kobe. You, there was a monk friend of yours that had the Gregorian masses. Yes, absolutely. I want to um, recommend to everyone. I mentioned it um, when I found out that he died. I made a very quick blog post and I immediately secured as fast as I could for this monk friend of mine who died. Um, I secured a Gregorian. And if you don't know what a Gregorian is, it's when you have 30 consecutive masses said for um a poor soul who has died, uh, the faithful departed. And so I was, I was especially happy to be able to do this because this friend, this monk friend of mine, his name was brother Thomas Pauling. And, um, I had seen him about a year and a half ago, the last time, and I promised him, I will, I will absolutely be back. I will absolutely be back to visit you. We had absolutely lovely time together, lovely chat. And I promised him I would be back and I never got back. But I kept my promise because I made pilgrimage to his grave and I secured a Gregorian for him. And the 30, the 30th day, it will conclude on February 15th. And I would like to commend absolutely everyone listening to my friend, father, or it's not father, brother, who's a monk, brother Thomas Pauling, um, and so now, you know, all of us here, our little family in the Barnhart podcast, as it is, we now have two. We have St. Tiny Princess, um, and we have my friend, Brother Thomas Pauling, who has had a Gregorian, or will, ha will have a Gregorian completed for him on the 15th of February. And I think that it is... Um, it's not unreasonable to go ahead and take things to him in prayer. I made pilgrimage to his grave on the second day of the Gregorian, and I stood in front of his fresh grave, and it was raining, and I prayed the entire rosary, 15, all 15. <coughs> and then I left, and as, as I was departing, of course, what happens? Rainbow comes out. So that was, that was incredibly encouraging. And, um, you know don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take and take things, anything in your life in prayer to St. Tiny Princess. And if you would like to, if you would like to enjoin my friend, brother Thomas Pauling in prayer, you can take anything to him. It doesn't have to be the Matthew 17, 20 intention. It's not exclusive to any of that or exclusive to any of the things. Remember the, these people, St. Tiny Princess is definitely in the beatific vision and brother Thomas Pauling. I think we can have very good pious hope, especially after this Gregorian that he is in the beatific vision and that um, they, they know and understand, and you can take absolutely anything to them in prayer and ask them to take it, to to our lady and to our lord um so don't be afraid take absolutely anything to them and, and, and whether just, and whether the monk your monk friend is in heaven or in purgatory you can still pray to the souls in purgatory they they can help you you can true. help them they cannot help themselves true exactly if he's still in purgatory then exactly um and you know what if he was sprung as that rainbow came out 
on day two of his Gregorian, let's say, hypothetically. Well, was the rest of the Gregorian wasted? Of course not, because then Our Lady redistributes all of that grace to whoever she sees fit, you know, completely forgotten souls of which there are so very, very many who are, who are in purgatory and there's no one to pray for them. If my friend, brother Thomas Pauling was sprung on day two of that Gregorian and there's 28 masses yet to go, those masses are not wasted. Now, a lot of people might be interested say, what, what are the logistics of this? It's not the easiest thing in the world to get one of these done because you need a priest who is free and has no other mass intentions for 30 consecutive days, which for a parish priest is almost impossible. So, but there are priests out there, retired priests, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, you have to be diligent. And of course, I'm, I'm well-connected, obviously, more than most people in this sense. <laughs> so I was able to get one sourced pretty quick. Uh, Sons much- of the Holy Redeemer used to go to the, go by the name of the Transalpine Redemptorists, the, the, ah, yes. the, the group up in uh, Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, I've personally arranged for a 30-day Gregorian for somebody that way. And, and uh, it was pretty quickly arranged and, and scheduled. Uh, that would be my first recommendation. The second recommendation would be Clear Creek Abbey down in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Now, there is a cost associated with this. Now, this is not simony because, of course, you can you can negotiate this with the priest that you're talking to. And if you are homeless, destitute, and you desperately need a Gregorian said for your spouse, but you're completely broke, I mean, you know, things things can be done. However, having said that, both the SSPX and the FSSP have as their set um, rate for a Gregorian eight hundred dollars. And that's what that's what I donated to the priest who said this Gregorian. So interesting, interesting thing. My income comes from you donors, which means that in a certain sense, you donors supplied that $800 that I then paid to have this Gregorian said for my priest friend. And you're saying, Anne, that's a lot of money. You spent a lot of money on this. Yes, I sure did because I keep my promises. I told him I would be back to visit him and it wasn't exactly how I would have liked it, but I went back to visit him and it's clear, it was obvious that I was supposed to do this and have this Gregorian said for him, but you guys ultimately subsidize that. So you are kind of participants in this whole in this whole process, which is another reason that I'm so very keen to recommend all of you to my friend, Brother Thomas Pauling. Um, please, you kind of, <laughs> you paid for his Gregorian, so, <laughs> but that's the going rate if you need to have one done and you're free to give more. And if you can't afford that, but you really, 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 really need one, you can, you can talk to the priest that this is not simony. You're not paying for the sacraments, but you know, this is, this is the priest walking around money. If you're taking up an entire month of masses for him and he gets he a priest get a stipend for almost every mass if there's an intention there you know it's it's just it's a nice little system everybody wins it's all good it's all cool it's not simony this is what, not germany phrase, so <laughs> what's the phrase the worker is worth his hire well 
that too. Yes, yes. But <laughs> we don't want it. We just have to be very diligent about making sure that everybody understands that we're not talking about selling the sacraments here, but we are giving a donation of $800 for 30 consecutive masses. So that's how that works. And I highly recommend it to all of you. Um, and maybe at some point, someone will have a Gregorian said for Kobe and Gianna Bryant. Um, but the, the sad thing is, is that Novus, the Novus Ordo, it just canonizes everybody. And so nobody's praying for the dead. Nobody's have, saying requiems, having requiems said, and Gregorians these days are now extraordinarily rare. And so not very many people get them. And they're, they're so incredibly powerful, so grace-filled. Um, you can, you can imagine. So, um, hopefully this, this will serve to kind of educate people and, and get the word out about them and, uh, enjoin St. Tiny Princess in prayer, who is in the beatific vision and also my friend, brother Thomas Pauling. And if you want to have a, a requiem said for Kobe at eight twenty four in the morning, by all means, go ahead and do that. Uh, the one point of clarification, you mentioned the going rate for the fraternity and the SSPX. Fraternity is usually bound, the fraternity of St. Peter, the, their priests are bound by the rules of the diocese in which they are incarnated. So that can actually vary from diocese to diocese based on okay. the prevailing rules. Uh, SSPX, I think they're at their organizational national level, how, how they operate. They're, they're not exactly bound by diocese. Uh, in the U.S., uh, not I, exactly. Right, no, that's putting no, not, not exactly. Not exactly. I, I, last time I checked, it was twenty dollars in the U.S. for a mass, and I did the quick math, and it's a little bit different from what you said. But then again, you also said Gregorian, so blocking out thirty days, maybe that is the going rate. I don't know. Um, just in case somebody is you know, wants wants to figure out how much this is going to cost, just definitely you know check your local listings. It might be a little bit different. Well, and, you know, just as with anything, it's really awkward to go into a situation like that and have absolutely no idea what, it, I mean, it could be 50 bucks or it could be 1500 you know, and you just don't have any idea. Let me give everyone just a ballpark, 800 you know, start from there, go up, up or down from there. That's, that's generally what you're looking at. So you're armed with information. So you're not having just excruciatingly awkward conversations about money with priests. You you kind of know where you stand. Yep. Yep. Well, based on the notes, I think I'm correct in saying we had enough uh, bullet points here for two podcasts. We haven't even gotten to the Pachamama con queso or um, <laughs> medical supply chain issues out of China. Although we did kind of talk about the Wutan flu. Um, I think we could probably cut it here. We're already over two hours, so. This is a world record. I think this is the <laughs> longest one ever, isn't it? It's a new year. we got to have new records. That's right. Yep. Okay. Uh, the email address. I guess we'll go ahead and wrap it up now. The email address for the podcast where you can send feedback, comments, suggestions, what the local going rate is for requiems in your diocese. The email address is podcast at barnhart.biz. Masses for Anne's benefactors. At least one mass every single day. That's today, tomorrow, yesterday, the day after that, the day before that. Every day. Um, everyone Usually who, two and sometimes three. Hey. Absolutely. And, and always a requiem every week for everybody who died the previous week. So we, we talked about uh, Kobe and, and everybody else who's died. Getting they got a requiem. one. They at got least one. They, yeah. At least they got one. But they were included with everyone else. Not that that matters. Not that the the number of people included dilutes it or anything like that. That's not what I'm saying. But yes, yes. 
Let, let me see. Um, I wasn't a math major, but if you're dividing infinity by any number that's not infinity, it's still more than enough, right? It's more than enough. Well said. <laughs> a plus on your math exam. There you go. Okay, cool. Uh, C programmers can do math. Uh, <laughs> so please take a moment to join your, your prayer intentions with the priests who are offering and celebrating the, these masses. Um, I, I, I can't stress enough that priests have a bigger target on their back, spiritually speaking, than we can possibly imagine. Um, we, we, we've talked about, uh, how, how the, the media hates conservatives and will try to deplatform them and all the rest. Satan hates priests even more because they can turn sinners into saints through the grace of God. They have the power to do that. And without priests, we have no chance. So please pray for the priests. The Barnhart Podcast is a production of Super Nerd Media. Um, the, that name might change this year, by the way. Um, let me take a, a slight uh, sidetrack on that here in a minute. Um, if you found something of value in this podcast or previous episodes and would like to return some value, please visit supernerdmedia.com for more information, which would be the mailing address to send information, because right now we cannot do, well, I cannot do digital um uh, donations. But anyway, so mailing something in, that's what Richard and I'm going to call him the anonymous bohemian. He said he wants to be anonymous and I have no clue if he's bohemian or not, but he sent me uh, both a donation and a very beautiful holy card of the, uh, it's a photo of the infant of Prague with a prayer that Pope Benedict XVI said during his visit to the church of our lady of our lady victorious in Prague in September of 2009. So mm-hmm. this is awesome. I'll take a photo of this and send it to you. Um, so I have no idea what his actual nationality is, but for the purpose of this podcast, I'm going to call him the anonymous bohemian. Thank you very much. Um, my comment about whether or not the name will change. So if you remember, I don't know how many episodes back it was, um, PayPal froze out my account, uh, the super nerd account. So I'm getting my taxes done for 2019 uh, something Ann doesn't do. And, and, uh, <laughs> well said. <laughs> and, and, uh, my, my tax preparer pointed out, cause I, I mentioned this whole PayPal thing and, and thinking I, I, I suspect it has to do with the fact that when I set up the super nerd account, it, there is no person called super nerd media, but that's what I gave as first name, last name. And I didn't expect this to be doing any real volume. And then between donations and DVD sales, real volume, at least enough for for the purposes of the IRS, came through the account. Well, what I found out is that payment processors like PayPal, Stripe, and anybody else who does payment processing, once a certain threshold is met, they have to generate a 1099K and the K, K for kilo. Um, it just means that they report to the IRS. This particular entity was having payments done for them. Here's the information for them. So you can do your shadow taxes, whether or not they file or not. And, and, um, because I never gave PayPal a real EIN or a social security number for super nerd media, I actually tried to at one point and because I had not set it up with real information to begin with, I was literally told by PayPal, it would be easier for you to close your account and just start a new one. So something I'm working toward in 2020 is actually doing a proper incorporation of an LLC and getting a proper EIN and getting all the proper stuff, this, that, and other thing. There will be the ability to do um, normal digital donations in the future. Uh, just not today, unless you want to do Bitcoin, which I'm not a huge fan of, but things like web hosting and media supply and things like that, I can pay for that by Bitcoin. So if you want to donate that way, cool. It, 
don't don't go out of your way to buy Bitcoin if it's not something you already know how to do or have, but I can do it. Really long way of saying thank you for the people who are donating and the ability to to donate will be coming soonish. And if you want to buy a DVD, by the way, uh, the the Bergoglio anti papacy. Uh, thank you to the other Richard who who helped me with getting that done. Um, there's a lot of people who named Richard who helped the podcast. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, he he helped me with getting the the uh, DVD created and uh, did did send one out to somebody uh, in the Eastern Time Zone and she confirmed yes it works. So if you want to order the Barnhart or the Barnhart the Bergoglio anti papacy uh, DVD that is available for sale right now by check. Email me. Is it both of them? Is it all four hours on one disc, both part one and part two? No. Well, there there are separate DVDs. Oh, okay. I see. Okay. I should probably update the website to make that more obvious. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which will probably be under the new name. <laughs> so, cool. um, no guarantees on when the updates will be happening. If you have any questions, just email uh, at supernerd. Email at supernerdmedia.com. That'll get to me, and I can answer those questions. Um, I think I've beaten that one to death. So still Big Max there. Time for Matthew 1720. The Matthew 1720 intention is everyday prayer and twice a week fasting um, in, in as much as you can. The intention is, of course, fourfold that anti-pope Bergoglio be publicly recognized and removed as anti-pope and the whole thing be nullified. That Pope Benedict Ratzinger be publicly recognized as having been the one and only living pope since April of 2005. These are these are equally as big folks. Don't forget these. That Bergoglio repent, revert to Catholicism, and in the fullness of time die in a state of grace and someday achieve the beatific vision. We're not praying for his death quite the opposite. We're just saying that in the fullness of time that he do that he does die well in a state of grace and achieves the beatific vision. And that also for Pope Benedict, that he repent of anything that he might need to repent of, and that in the fullness of time that he die in a state of grace and someday achieve the beatific vision. Prayer and fasting, prayer every day, obviously, and fasting twice a week in as much as you can. That's it. Because ultimately what we want is the salvation of souls. That's right. And, and Bergoglio especially needs time. You don't, you're not praying for the guy to drop dead in his soup because if that happened right now, I, I, I can only imagine how bad the consequences of that would be. So you're not praying for him to die, but everyone's going to die. But in the fullness of time. And that he dies well and he's repented and he's in the state of grace. That's what you have to be um, that's what you have to be praying for. It's it's never a good idea to pray for anyone's death, ever. No, in fact that's usually considered a sin. You know? Yeah. It, if if you will somebody's damnation, that is objectively speaking a moral sin. And mm-hmm. if you will somebody's death, I don't know how you can will it um, without it being sinful other than tongue in cheek. Um, I've, I've made the comment that yes, I hope Hillary Clinton makes it to pre- makes it to heaven before the sun sets, which is not willing her death. It's just a humorous way of saying I wish she would convert. Well, it's also tied up. But so when you say something like that, you are even though you're saying it tongue in cheek, you are specifically tying up with her achieving the beatific vision. Um, you can't just say I hope Bergoglio dies. Period. 
no, oh, no, 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 absolutely not. We, what we have to be praying for is that this situation gets resolved as soon as possible and that all parties, um, th that this massive knot is untied and that it's an untied in such a wonderfully complete way that, that even Bergoglio dies well, repents, does his time in purgatory, we'll, we'll assume, we'll assume that there will be time served in purgatory and then makes it to the beatific vision. That's, that's what you're going for. Then that, that's, that's the only charitable way to be. And again, I was thinking today at mass that Bergoglio, let, let's just say that he could be the false prophet forerunner of the antichrist with a capital T, the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist. It is conceivably possible that he could be the antipode or the, the unwinding of like a Judas Iscariot, that because the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist is a human being, no human being is beyond um, is beyond redemption or is beyond salvation, is, is completely reprobate and could not be saved. It is conceivably, theoretically, theologically possible that the false prophet forerunner of the Antichrist could repent and end up eventually achieving the beatific vision. That's not impossible. And it, it the reason why is because no human being, while they're still alive, is outside of the realm of possibility of, of Christ's mercy. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing that a twerp like Bergoglio could do that could come even close to the infinite, the infinite grace and mercy contained in just the one drop of blood that our Lord shed it is circumcision. Never mind the the mega infinity to the power of infinity to the power of infinity to the power of infinity of of grace and mercy that our Lord shed in his death on the cross. So if you think that that Bergoglio is beyond hope and couldn't be saved, you you really don't understand and you need to really stop and think about who our Lord is and what infinite means, infinite mercy. Because if you say that if you say that Bergoglio is beyond redemption and could never be saved, then what you're saying is that Bergoglio is in in a sense bigger, that he's bigger than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is, that's just completely, totally wrong. So yeah, the fourfold intention that both of them achieve the beatific vision is absolutely crucial in all of this. And and while this kind of seems like a dour, downbeat um, kind of theme to be striking repeatedly in this podcast, we did just begin in Deceptuagesima, which is the beginning of the Easter cycle. And yes, this is the, the time of year to start taking things seriously. We are human. We're mm -hmm. going to die. And we will answer to God. And the only final outcome is heaven or hell. That's right. For all of us. And if, if, if we're set, then great. Start helping others. You know, get your mask on and then help others. Ultimately, we all need to get to heaven. And that's what we're working toward. And this is the time of year to take this seriously. So. Yep, buckle down. The big fast hasn't begun yet. The big 40 days hasn't begun yet. But we, you should be starting to, you know, ease yourself into that swimming pool and um, start getting used to it. And yeah, that's that's why we have beautiful uh, purple liturgical vestments to remember to start toning it down. That's why the Alleluia has been buried, starting to tone it down. So onward. 
we'll probably be doing some more podcasts soon. I reckon. <laughs> we, I reckon. We've got yeah. notes for at least one more right here, and, and I'm sure more will come up. So until next time, I am Super Nerd, at least for now. And I'm Anne. Thanks, guys. God bless. <laughs> <laughs>